Science is the study of the universe and planet Earth, exploring new frontiers free of bias, belief or corruption to make sense of our incredible and mysterious universe. New discoveries are communicated and reported to the public through the media, which heal sickness and improve life for the global population. Education encourages open-minded skepticism and healthy debate, and the public are given all sides of every scientific story. However, some see science as a series of fragmented disciplines ruled by bias and corruption, with limitations on reporting through the media and a global cult in control of the scientific establishment whose narrative is repeated through the education system, which rewards compliance to its doctrine and punishes questioning and deviating from its narrative. Scientists forging their own path and challenging conventional beliefs see funding stop mocking from colleagues and derision and ridicule in the media. Here to discuss these issues with me is Mike Donio, an oncologist, researcher and published scientific author with a Master of Science degree. Donio was let go from his previous job for refusing to take the COVID-19 vaccine and now challenges the COVID-19 scientific narrative and the scientific establishment in general, highlighting the importance of challenging convention conducting controlled, honest experiments, and most importantly, questioning everything. Usually, you know, the first question that's asked in interviews is, can you tell the listeners or viewers a bit about yourself? But in your case, that's a really good idea because <laughs> um, you've got a very interesting story. Obviously, you were on the inside of the pharmaceutical industry and the scientific world for 20 years and um, you stepped out of it to speak out and so um, what was it that made you step out of it and just give a brief bit of background <clears throat> yeah yeah um, you know and again thank you so much for for having me on um, so you know I started out with a strong interest in science and I guess um naivete thinking that I could do some good with it not realizing what exactly went on in scientific research and in especially in the in the drug industry <clears throat> and um so I you know I would say that I guess at least I thought I was going into it for the right right reasons but um obviously I I didn't I later realized that was not uh, it was not at all what I thought it was so um, I have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology with a minor in chemistry from the University of Massachusetts I have a master's degree in biotechnology with a concentration in biotechnology enterprise from Johns Hopkins and um, most of my career has been in industry between pharma and biotech. I, I did spend a little bit of time at the beginning in sort of an academic setting doing virology research uh, where I studied what I thought was HIV um, and then spent some time um, studying neuroscience and that was kind of the bulk of my pharma time. And then most recently, um, I was at a biotech company in oncology developing antibodies to treat cancer. And that kind of leads up to um, about last September, where my now former company, um, as with the, pretty much the majority, if not all of industry, it's been pretty much industry-wide, they rolled out a mandate for the the jab and i did not comply and here i am and it's been a pretty incredible journey <laughs> yeah i was going to ask you what was it that made you refuse the covid vaccine what were you aware of what had you seen what had you heard about the vaccine that made you refuse to take it yeah um so i would kind of put that into like two buckets. So the first was the fact that as a scientist, I mean, I felt like I 
was kind of uniquely positioned to do some research before just accepting this because I kind of I had some idea of the the technology going in, but you know I it it was completely new to be putting it in humans. So I really wanted to delve into understand kind of the history of the technology, what it's theoretically was supposed to do um, and how it was supposed to work and all this stuff. And so I, I spent a good chunk of time just kind of confirming my suspicions effectively and, and doing some research on the companies that were developing it. I mean, some of them I was already familiar with, but, um, and, you know, that just really led me to a point where I was shocked that you would put something like this into this many people without considerable long-term testing, and especially considering this technology, especially the mRNA technologies, had been tried previously to treat cancer and other um, rare diseases, and it failed pretty spectacularly. Yeah, I, I I know that um, Mike Eden has talked about that as well. Um, mm-hmm. Former um, uh, uh, chief scientific advisor at Pfizer, he's talked about the fact that it originally was used as a cancer treatment, and he said it's quite odd that you would use it as a preventative treatment for a virus. He said it's not made for that. You know, it's it's not what you would use for on a wide population. <laughs> Right, right. It was, I mean, and I don't think that was, well, who knows? I mean, it could have been the intention, but it it didn't, from the early work, it didn't seem like that was the intention. It was kind of this um, new technology that was supposed to potentially replace um, kind of the original gene therapy, which had been uh, pretty, pretty much an unmitigated disaster, causing a lot of um, problems in most of the trials and things that it's been attempted in. And so this was kind of just another way to try to accomplish the same things that were being accomplished there. But, you know, I guess hoping that you might mitigate some of the issues that they were seeing. Unfortunately, that was not the case. It was when it was tried in, in cancer and um, some rare diseases it, at the dose that they thought would be um, required therapeutically, it was overwhelmingly toxic. And then they dialed it down to a dose that they thought would be kind of mitigate those toxicities. And, you know, it, it didn't do anything. So it was pretty clear early on that this, it, there was some significant hurdles to having this technology get through any kind of regulatory approval process. And the companies, especially one of the big ones that was working on it, they had built up so much, well, they had raised an insane amount of money, but I mean, there was so much excitement around this technology that they had built up and that, you know, they hadn't delivered on that promise, that potential. So, you know, then all of a sudden they're pivoting and it's like, oh, well, we can just use it as a, as a vaccine. And except for it was never seemingly, like you said, thought of for that or in any way tested on such a massive population. It had never been tested for, you know, anywhere near this duration. And and even so, I mean, the other thing about that is when you when you pivot like that and then you're not going towards a kind of a traditional uh, regulatory path. So it is a little bit different for approval of things like vaccines. And but even in this case, you know, there were so many uh, kind of things that were omitted or um, changed. You know, the whole thing was very truncated. They um, didn't do the preclinical safety testing. Um they at some point got rid of the control group. I mean, so there were all of these these red flags and then looking at what the technology is supposed to do itself. Um, how did you, you know, you, how, 
I just yeah. have to ask you on that point. How, how did you know they've got rid of the control group? Is that written somewhere, or have they admit? What, have they said that? How, how did you know they didn't? They got rid of the control group at one point. Um, I forget exactly where I saw that written, or if that was something that I came across looking actually at the clinical trials information on something like clinicaltrials.gov, where here in the U.S., that's the kind of main database for all the clinical trials. Um, so it was it was, it was either in kind of the actual specific clinical trial uh, information or it was, you know, in some news story. But it was pretty well corroborated. I know a number of people had uh, discussed it and confirmed it. So, um, but it's still kind of a mind-boggling thing that you would get rid of a control group and i think they wound up just treating them all and then you know you don't have anybody left to compare to except for you know anybody in the real population that's not receiving it yeah i mean the the i mean i've looked at a lot um, of the the uh, information about the trials myself and the, it's it's a joke that you would call them trials the uh, the corners they cut and the uh, the lack of proper scientific rigor in the trials um uh so what what do you make of the argument that we didn't have time in the face of a pandemic to wait for long-term testing um i i don't agree with that myself i mean if you're going to have that argument then you could use that to put anything in, in people's bodies that doesn't really make sense to me but mike heedon said he didn't know why they didn't use the live virus vaccine model but then he said no one's got the virus if you ask around and of course that's because there's mm -hmm. nothing of the virus to have that's why right i mean it's an incredibly slippery slope to be suggesting that you have to cut these corners because of an emergency because then where does that end you can then effectively apply that to whatever you want as long as you're able to then to call it an emergency situation and then yeah I mean, and even now, going forward, they're developing these new generation versions of these things. And there's and there's some suggestion that they won't even have to do testing in clinical trials. And it's just mind boggling. Like, then who's the experiment, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the <laughs> population are the experiment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Did you ever see any examples of cutting corners and bias and corruption and uh, twisting the uh, explanation of the results to get papers published in your career, given that it did last 20 years? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I saw a lot of what you might call crazy things um, with how data was manipulated or cherry picked, how... Um, you know, sometimes you put in a piece of data into a paper or a patent or something, and it would be just a single experiment. But it, if it fit kind of the story you were trying to tell or or whatever, or you know, and it helped to, say, differentiate the drug you're developing or whatever, then, you know, you <laughs> the idea was go with it because, you know, it, it makes us look good. And, I mean, so, it, so little is about doing actual real science it comes down to you know who do the people with the money want and you know especially in industry you're never ever gonna publish data that is negative or that doesn't cast whatever you're doing your you know the drugs or that you're developing or whatever in any kind of a bad light um, because that correlates with value and the whole thing is you know building profit so um you know you you'd have these goals and things of well you have to publish you know x number of papers or whatever and you know you'd have you'd only have some of the data and so you'd have to sit there and you instead of saying well let's just do some more work and see kind of where it leads us it would be like all right let's figure out what story we want to tell and then we'll specifically design experiments to fill in the gaps and you know <laughs> just like Again, not science, but it's yeah. the system kind of perpetuates this stuff. I mean, in, in academia, you know, you kind of live and die on 
publishing papers because that's how you get more grants and yeah, it's yeah. just a vicious cycle as you know um so a lot of corners guess, get cut yeah it, it's a shame i mean the root problem is is money isn't it i guess and but mm-hmm. there's no way around that <laughs> you can't there's no alternative model to to say okay well the money system is the money based uh you know model isn't working so let's try this there isn't any other model so the problems that um you just mentioned and, and others that are because of money there's no way around them that's the problem they're going to continue right exactly i mean the current system is so i don't know dependent on on money and and profiting and i mean there's 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 almost no way to get around that within this current system and um yeah and i mean unfortunately they have such a monopoly on on a lot of this stuff that it's very hard to come up with other ways to do experiments and ask questions if they don't fall in line with um the mainstream views and who are who's providing the funding and the resources and and things the problem is when people like you and others come out and speak out then uh, the vast majority of people never get to hear about you you know and social media censors mm-hmm. um and even when someone like me who looks at your work and tom cowan and andrew kaufman and all these people um people just say well i i don't need to listen to them because if they knew what they were talking about they'd be on television you know <laughs> it's the uh you know their, their argument is what about experts on television then surely we can trust them they wouldn't be on television if they didn't know what they were talking about scientists are educated people you know when of course it's not as simple as that as as, as we've just been talking about it's the it's the money it's the it's the dogma as well the dogma i mean the the root of scientists and the public dogma is the education system mm-hmm and I know Tom Cowan um, advocates learning by showing, learning by experience, rather than a formal, rigid kind of structure with an authority with an authority figure saying, "Take this as read, this is all true, and if you think differently, you're wrong." You know, and I think we need to get away from that model of people being told, and move towards a model of personal discovery and collaboration, rather than someone above you telling you what to think. Yeah, I think absolutely, 100%. I mean, the the current system is, well, it's generating, you know, probably exactly the kinds of scientists and doctors that, that they want that will meet the needs and of the system and continue to uh, perpetuate what it's, what it's doing. But it's certainly not building people who are asking questions and, and exploring things. And, uh, you know, I mean, grad school my grad school experience was similar to what some of these other people um, have talked about where you're even in medical school, you're just getting bombarded with information. Um, And then you don't even have a chance to ask questions or anything. It's just appeal to the authority of the instructor. Yeah, Yeah. Because it's so much. And then of course they only cover certain things. So some elements are just completely off the radar. You you never even broach certain subjects. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, vaccines will be an example of that. You know, you, it, mm-hmm. you're in a, you're not going to be a very popular questioning vaccines <laughs> in in grad school. You know. No, that's for sure. <laughs> So, so, I mean, someone told me once that um, scientists, doctors, medical professionals don't have to don't have to fear speaking out because they're educated people and they can get jobs in other areas of their profession or they can move into teaching or other high paid jobs in other fields. But I mean, you know, doctors want to be doctors, scientists want to be scientists. They don't do it uh, to say, OK, well, you know, I, I, I spoke out or I questioned this and I can't be a scientist. I'll just do this instead. You know, they they want to, to do what they've worked all those years to do. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's um, it's uh, 
I think the biggest problem is the public, the image the public have of scientists is not, is pretty much the opposite of the reality. Yeah, I mean, the way that the public kind of looks towards scientists as kind of the singular holders of this knowledge and information. And, you know, if you're a scientist and you have, you know, certain degrees or whatever, you know, you aren't to be questioned and you're to be respected. And, you know, and then and conversely, if you don't have those things, who are you to question anything or to speak yeah, about, yeah. about any of this stuff? And yeah. it's just a really weird paradigm. But I mean, you can kind of see why it's um, kind of come up that way. People say the classic line, you 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 kind of um, touched on it then, you know, how do you know you're not a doctor when doctors and especially scientists only know what they're told and taught and, are, you know, cutting corners all the time in terms of proper scientific rigor and discovery. So it's not like they're the fountain of knowledge. They, they're, they're, you know, they go through the education system, years of indoctrination to know what the public think they know. Yeah, I mean, extensive um, indoctrination. And what I found is more often than not, a lot of these scientists, especially with more kind of, quote unquote, advanced training, I mean, they're really good at kind of regurgitating various facts and things. But when yeah. it comes to actually exploring deeper, it, it, it's almost impossible did you see that in your career? Did you see scientists really exploring beyond the norm or were they always just taking the norm as read and then build, building on from there? So the, the base assumption is is uh, taken as read and all the discovery they do or think they do is based on that rather than checking the original assumption first. Oh, yeah. But by, by and large, most scientists just take most published data at, at face value just yeah. assume so much and don't really properly validate that so you know <laughs> this is this is how you wind up with this um i don't know if you're familiar with the whole reproducibility crisis issue yeah 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 so i mean it, well and, this, antibodies yeah. isn't a great example Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's some. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you. Yeah. And the, I mean, do you know, do you know any scientists yourself who are awake but are afraid to speak out? Um, You know, so that's something I've been asked because. You know, it's. This kind of idea is. is is there nobody else questioning it or is everybody, you know, is everybody all in on it or those mm -hmm. kinds of things? I mean, I think most scientists are kind of unwilling participants. I mean, they're kind of oblivious because they're so focused on building their own careers and making a name for themselves. Um, yeah. You know, and there's so much, so many big egos in science that it's just kind of, it's far easier to just believe what you've been told than, than question things. That being said, I've definitely encountered people that have been willing to ask questions, perhaps not to the level that I have. But, um, yeah, it's it's definitely not the case that there's nobody that's asking questions. I think it's the major issue is retribution. You know, if you if you speak out more than just simply kind of pushing back a little bit in in meetings and things that you know, your your job and your whole career is at risk. And then what do you do? I mean, because most of these people, they kind of know one thing, uh, especially the more um, schooling and specialization. They really, it's like, you know, one thing, which is kind of weird too. the way science kind of um, is very compartmentalized, compartmentalized. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it kind of sets up this whole thing where they just can't see how they would operate outside of that system 
and they know that if they say something, you know, there's going to be likely some kind of retribution. So they just don't. Yeah. Um, just going back to um, the vaccines, a question I was going to ask you, I'd forgotten the time. Um, there are some in the alternative arena who claim that pharma medicines and vaccines, and I guess not least the COVID vaccine, are designed to be damaging to the body and the brain. Um, you know, not side effects, but effects. What's your take on that from your experience in the pharma world? Um, do you think that they're, I mean, I'm not saying that people making it, putting it together know that. They just put it together how they're told to do it. But, you know, from the, the, the high level of the hierarchy, do you think they're intended to be damaging to the body? Um, you know, it's it's hard to come to a different conclusion when you kind of understand how these things work. Um, you know, I would I would definitely say that I think most people just they most scientists that are developing these these drugs they pretty wholly believe in the science and therefore believe that what they're doing is the correct way to you know to develop a, a drug or to treat some condition and so you know they just justify it by that even though it's pretty well known that so many drugs are you know especially in certain areas like on, like oncology and, and things and I guess virology like they're incredibly toxic so but it's a hard thing to wrestle with if you know you're developing these drugs that potentially have horrific side effects um you know but then you're up against the idea of well but I believe that the science is correct you know is correct and I'm doing this to try to help it you know it's this kind of weird um paradigm but when you look at these drugs I mean there's no way you can really say that they really have any, you know, you, you hear these kinds of buzzwords about well, targeted therapy or something like that, but there's no drug that works on one thing and one thing only. Um, and so the whole idea that you have drug effects and side effects, I mean, they're all just effects. I mean, it's a chemical. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a foreign chemical that you're putting in your body and your body is going to react to it and it's going to hit a lot of different things in a lot of different places, wherever it's distributed to. And by and large, cause problems. And occasionally, you might have something that you perceive as a positive effect. But you know, I think in a lot of cases, it's overwhelmingly that you're you're having problems. But of course, it's not. Um, nobody considers that. Even most doctors don't treat what is obviously just side effects of drugs. Yeah. As such, they treat it as if it's a new symptom and then start piling on more drugs and then you have more, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just another vicious cycle. But I mean, everything is so when you're developing these drugs, it's so artificial and kind of isolated the models and things that you're using. You can only test so many different things in so many different ways. So you, there's no way you can know. And it everything that these drugs are doing and you're also doing it in a very contrived way that in no way mimics what's happening in a human body there are many that are well convinced even inside that the most preclinical models whether it's in vitro you know in a dish or in vivo in an animal are not predictive in any way uh in terms of what's going to happen in, in a human in a clinical trial and so i mean effectively you're just doing all this work to check boxes to to get regulatory approval to do your clinical trial but you're kind of you're going in blind effectively i mean and yet you're kind of coming up with these ways of trying to describe the activities of these drugs so that you can spin it in a you know i guess with marketing to to convince people that this is effective for this disease or this is effective for this. But I mean, you know, then if you see how many of these things wind up getting repurposed, it's like, well, I thought that was for, you know, disease X, but now you're telling me that, you know, you can use this for something else. Well, how can that be possible if this is a specific targeted treatment, right? I mean, now in terms of whether, you know, 
there's an intent the the intent is actually to harm versus hurt i mean at the low levels i i don't think there's there's no suggestion of that but it's hard not to perceive that because the more you work with this stuff and think about it i mean the less you realize that it's actually helping most people so if that's not the case and you understand how toxic these things are i mean plus you can look at the there's been reports about iatrogenic death you know and yeah yeah a big yeah. part of that is drugs so well drugs and especially iatrogenic i mean that's one of the biggest killers isn't it certainly in america yeah i, th- I think it's like in the top three last time we looked it was it was the top at one point um which just shows how upside down the the system is that the treatment is the biggest cause of death right well and that didn't even account for the top two which are cancer and heart disease which i would argue that again most of the time the treatment is the problem not the actual yeah condition. yeah i mean you've got um chemotherapy which kills mm-hmm. all cells not just um mm-hmm. cancer cells kind of indiscriminately and then you've got radiotherapy which is radiation which is the cause of cancer <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, well, chemotherapy, too, has a side effect. Most chemotherapies of causing cancer, so. Yeah, yeah, because it, it targets cells. Right. Indiscriminately, and, yeah. And exactly. So you, and so you've got um a situation where over all the decades, all the millions, if not, you know, tens, hundreds of millions donated towards cancer research and charities and stuff, and yet the best they can come up with is two causes of cancer and I, I can't help but think that is it not more likely that a cure for cancer has been found, but it's been suppressed rather than they just haven't found one yet. And the best they can come up with is we hope this will help, but it might cause a problem, you know. Yeah, it's it's absolutely mind boggling all of these years and all of the money that's been dumped in and the war on cancer and everything that. When you really look at it, now you have to dig a little because, you know, they, they tend to kind of manipulate the numbers. But um, there have been studies that have looked into, like, say, the the success rate of chemotherapy. And it's not even 3% for most cancers. I mean, it's mind-bogglingly low when you think about what you're put through when you're on these drugs, the quality of life. And yet... Where, we're, where, where, where is the three uh, percent figure from? Is that in a study or there, where, where people find that for themselves? Yeah, there was a study. Um, shoot, I forget. I was just looking at it the other day. Um, it's from a, a couple years ago, but I, I think a group kind of went and pulled data from, you know, all different clinical trials and things to try to get an, you know, an aggregate view of just how effective these treatments are and kind of then sorted by different cancer types and also geographically looking at different places around the world to see, you know, how much of a difference there is. And um, I think in in the U.S. it was something like 2.1% or 2.5%. I mean, it was just mind-boggling. Incredible. Um, So, I mean, do you think that the this pharmaceutical system overall is designed to cause problems rather than treat them or do you think it's half and half or do you think it's just you know um just you know hit and hope as they say you know they're trying to help but they're not addressing the problems that treatments are causing or do you think it's a bit of all of this <laughs> yeah i mean i guess the way I look at it as, and from being on the inside, I mean, it's always presented as, even though these companies kind of present themselves as patient-centered or we put the patients first, I mean, it's a completely different view on the inside. It's all about building a a valuable business. It's all about um, building value in your drugs and things and um, returning, uh, providing returns on investments and stuff. I mean, so it's, it's not at all about kind of the way it's perceived outward. Um, because in reality, I mean, it is a business. Biotech literally is yeah. 
inno- yeah. innovating or profiting off of innovation. I mean, when you think about the relationship there as as a person, as a patient, you know, you want to believe that it's it's there to benefit you. But I mean, their goals really are to increase their profits and not have their um, market dry up and, and generate return customers, just like any other business. And, yeah. you know, you're the customer, right? And yeah. so, it, you know, you being healthy is not advantageous to their system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the most simple yet devastating, you know, facts and perspectives about the whole uh, pharmaceutical system to kind of say to someone who believes in the, the, the pharmaceutical method of treatment is to say, well, you know, when you think about that, if everyone was healthy, then they're not going to make any money, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So, um uh just a point i was going to say about um the um the way the doctors prescribe drugs you kind of mentioned it just now um when you go into a doctor's surgery now certainly in in the uk and i guess it must be the same in america um the you you have like five minute appointments and you know for much of that time it's the doctor typing on a computer what drug Mm -hmm. to prescribe you and they're not really listening to the problem. They're just looking for a drug to prescribe for what they think will will cure the problem or help the problem. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like um, drive-through medicine. I mean, it's. I think you maybe get 15 minutes at, at most or something. And yeah, they just sit there and type stuff into a computer and then, you know, it pops out a diagnosis or whatever and what you need to prescribe. And then, you know, you're on your way. It's like, how could the, how could the doctor possibly have any idea of anything about you and what, you know, and what, um, what, what health looks like to you and what, or what your level of health is or anything like that to be able to say that you're sick or you require this intervention. I mean, they're just not, spending any amount of time and then the education you know they're not learning about things like nutrition or whatever it's all just geared towards yeah the goal of prescribing more drugs when you when you went to medical school did they teach anything about um nutrition or or anything like that or was it all about drugs well, I didn't I didn't go to medical school, um, okay. but in but I did. But in my grad school classes, I mean, it was very much geared towards drugs and treatments. I mean, especially things that were specific, more related to cancer. I mean, it's all about target ha- using drugs or, you know, these kind of classic conventional treatments to target cancer. I mean, very much driving home this, the same things that have been in place. For all of these years, which kind of surprised me because, you know, in my, at, in the space I was in, in this last role at this biotech company, I mean, it was supposed to be kind of a hot area where there, where there's all these new therapies. Um, but yet what you find is most people that get cancer still, it's still the same old thing that's um pushed on you despite all this supposed new research that's being done um you know and then what you find out is the doctors even the, the oncologists themselves would won't wouldn't give themselves or their family members or whatever the these same treatments the chemos and stuff and um i mean it's just yeah so did they teach, did they touch on nutrition tools and other ways to keep the body healthy, like vitamins and things like that? No, I don't, I don't think there was anything about that. It's, it's all geared towards how to think about ways to target things that are supposedly related to different disease processes. Um, at, you know, kind of the biology, you know, around those things, but I don't even know if there was a class on nutrition, come to think of it, or anything even specifically like that. 
So I, I, I mean, it's almost completely absent from um, a lot of meds. Med, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've heard that it's pretty absent from med schools, but um, from grad schools too, which of course in a lot of cases are tied into the med schools. So, um, what, um, what do you make of the? Because that kind of connects into that. What do you make of the germ theory versus terrain theory debate? Do you subscribe to terrain theory, or are you kind of somewhere in between, or, or what? Um, I, th I, from what I've been learning, I think that the that the idea of terrain theory makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, agree. I just think germ theory kind of plays on you know, a sort of victim mentality. You, you don't have to be responsible for anything you're doing in your life because if you get a virus or whatever, you know, there was nothing you could do about it. And so yeah. you just get sick. But it turns out we can't just keep punishing our body and exposing them to crazy things and not expecting bad things to happen. But yet we're yeah. never taught to be, you know, that we have to be responsible for that because of the way that we look at things through the lens of germ, ther germ theory, um, you know, and then we're taught to be afraid and squash any symptoms we had have, but it makes more sense if those symptoms really are part of the body's healing processes. Yeah. You know, and so I think it, it, again, these things are theories. I don't know. And, and I think there's probably other, theories to explain these sort of things but you know i think the dangerous thing is that to accept one and then throw everything out and that's kind of what we did with germ th germ theory for the most part is we accepted this and this was the only thing that was pushed and we just threw any other possible explanation out and so that's what everybody's known what you've been taught what you've been told you know yeah. the strength is in being able to compare different theories and say well this doesn't make any sense or, you know, this one seems and that's, you know, when I look at the two together and other things, that's where I, it just looks like to me, like terrain theory explains things better than. Than yeah. germ theory. In a lot of ways. Agree. And it, it's interesting that um, as you were just talking about, you know, they don't they don't teach um, the alternative causes of illness in grad school. It's all about germ theory it's all about you know this virus causes or this bacteria causes this problem and so you need this treatment and so so there, there's so little funding and research into well what causes illness if not viruses and microorganisms then and that's so mm -hmm. little studied and so there, there, there's no it, you know kind of forming in a, an alternative understanding what's called the new biology um is uh it's, it's a bit more of a challenge because there's so little research done into it yeah ex exactly and i you know i mean i would argue that's probably been intentional um, yeah 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 because why would you want people looking into into other things because then they might actually not decide to take your your yeah. treatments and things it's it's all about um de-emphasizing personal responsibility for health right yeah they, they i agree want, well yeah, you know it, i just got sick because i just caught this or that there's nothing i can do yeah and so i have to look to doctors in the pharmaceutical cartel to help me out of this unfortunate situation you know um so i have to ask you um because it's uh a very topical subject um the monkeypox situation or <laughs> not really um <laughs> so what is the public not being told about monkeypox i mean i know the, the world health organization a few days ago announced a global health emergency um and interestingly um ted ross the um director general overruled his own you know scientific panel and, and declared the the health emergency anyway even though they said we don't mm -hmm. think it justifies that label so so what what do you know about the monkey pop situation in terms yeah. of the reality of it 
Well, again, it seems like another one of these kind of games that's being played. Um, you know, for starters, the way that they're it's all about the testing, right? And the way that they're testing yeah. is the same the same old story with a PCR yeah, assay. Yeah, yeah. And even the symptoms have kind of morphed a little bit from what you might expect it to be for a virus like this that should have a, you know, characteristic skin rash or whatever. You know, now there's all these other symptoms where they're saying, well, maybe you won't even have that. And it's like, and yeah, so you know, it's monkey they're then, just yeah. kind of yeah. changing the, more of just changing the truth, the definitions of things yeah. in real time to fit the narrative. I mean, but nobody thinks about that. Well, how many of these people that are testing positive or, or coming down with this, what they're calling monkeypox, have yeah. taken the COVID thing? Yeah. yeah. And I know there was that, um, I think it was Pfizer, um, one of the documents they released um with all the list of symptoms in um i think it was pfizer um and one of the a few of the symptoms were that they said uh, adverse events from the vaccine um were like shingles and and, and other conditions which can cause pox on the skin Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i've i've heard about that as well and i mean it doesn't seem surprising um the skin is you know, a way, one of the mechanisms by which the body detoxes itself. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and I know people like Tom Cowan have said that he thinks that's what these um, pox diseases are. It's actually the body trying to get out something mm -hmm. rather than a, an illness. Um, and the thing is, you know, there's there's different pox diseases and what are called diseases that look similar in terms of the pox. And so how can you even decipher between them how do you know whether it's shingles how do you know whether it's chicken pots monkey pots you know there's no kind of clear definition i guess yeah i guess you have to have a, some sort of a test right that <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good idea yeah i mean you just take this pcr test or you take that pcr test and whatever pops up then <laughs> i mean yeah. Yeah. yeah um so no logic <laughs> so what um what kind of um reform of the medical system would you like to see take place if you were placed in charge of the world health organization tomorrow what would you instigate what would you say i'm gonna implement this yeah i don't i don't think i'd really want that job but if i, I guess <laughs> I suppose suppose if i was um i mean i think we have to get away from this whole paradigm of kind of a singular way of going about treating illness and that's just the allopathic medical system we have to open ourselves up to other alternative understandings of illness and conversely ways to go about managing it treating it preventing it all things that of course the system in the industry want nothing to do with but yeah um and i don't know whether that's i mean there's a lot of good people well seemingly good people i guess that you know talk about trying to fix the system from within but yeah. so so much of what i've seen almost suggests that it's irreparable because yeah. you have things like the reproducibility crisis and other things and even though scientists acknowledge that these things they they don't see where there's a problem or where it's means that the system is flawed. So there's no willingness to, to change anything. So, yeah. you know, you're kind of just going to spend a lot of your time banging your head against the wall because you might, you know, even though these things are understood to be issues, if nobody is willing to do anything because, you know, they understand the, to some level, the implications, um, then, you know, it's going to be a, a fruitless endeavor. I mean, I think I, Unfortunately, we need kind of a to look at a way to decentralize this and create new systems to be able to do these things. And I think that's, uh, you know, some of that is is what's occurred. And one of the kind of perhaps positive things that's come out of the last two and a half years.
Are you familiar with the new biology, as it's called? Kind of the the way, I mean, I know Tom Cowan talks about um, seeing the body as structured water and the idea that, you know, cells as we as we know them are not, we don't necessarily have cells and um, uh, a lot of the um, components of cells like the endoplasmic reticulum and gold mm -hmm. apparatus and things like that have never been proven to actually be in the cell. What do you kind of make of the new biology? Are, are you aware of it? What have you seen of it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've heard him talk about it and I've looked into some of those things a little bit myself. I mean, I think there's a lot of um, interesting theories there and I'd like to explore them more. I mean, the the part about the water and um, kind of that it's the structured water in the cytoplasm of the cell that's really responsible for a lot of um you know, what we are versus the kind of um, mainstream view that it's kind of all directed out of the nucleus by the genome, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It is really intriguing, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's, there's a lot to be intrigued about, and I'm, you know, I do, I want to learn more about it because it does resonate with things that I've thought about uh, as I've kind of done my own research or questioned things that have been put in front of me throughout my career. How long into your career did you start to question? Was it is it a very recent thing or is it something that you kind of sort, thought, you know, I need to really look at what I've been taught because maybe it's not the truth? Yeah, as it turns out, it was pretty much right away. Um, when I, when I got started as a young scientist, um, sort of my first job was in a lab of an infectious disease doctor studying HIV. And I went in with certain preconceptions about how things might work in that setting. And it wasn't at all what I thought, you know, I kind of naively assumed that they must be isolating virus from patient samples and then studying that and using that to characterize it and um, test different, you know, potential therapeutic interventions or whatever. But isolating the variable. Right. But as it turns yeah. out, when I asked, there wasn't, you know, the, the answer that I got was there wasn't enough. Um, and so you spend all the time when you're studying this stuff using these viral stocks that are generated in cell lines, yeah, yeah, which don't really mimic, you know, healthy cells or a, a full intact human body in any way. So you really can't conclude that anything you're seeing there is, you know, what you'd see in a, in a human, um, yeah. But, you know, it's all, again, just kind of assuming that you have something there. And a lot of the cases, it's because of some indirect readout or something that you're observing, like the cytopathic effect. But the problem is, in most cases, you're not doing a well-controlled experiment. So you, you're not ruling out all the potential things that could cause these these different things. And to be able to say that you know you have a virus, I mean... We also never isolated anything to be able to go yeah. back and say, here's the independent variable. We know we have this and everything else is coming from that. I mean, it's just assumption after assumption after assumption. So I started digging into, you know, the whole kind of people questioning the HIV AIDS paradigm and came across people um, like Peter Duesberg and the Perth group and all of those kinds of people. And that really, you know, had me questioning a lot about what I was doing there. And, you know, I think it just, as I moved through my career, I kind of kept that kind of skeptical and inquisitive mindset. And whenever anything would come up that just didn't sit right, I would kind of look more into it or push back a, a little bit. Um, you know, COVID kind of really sent things, you know, confirmed a lot because 
none of it made any sense even to me as a scientist so yeah how i mean was it you was it right away that you kind of saw the covid was a hoax or was it kind of a bit later on you know into the into the hopes that you started to question it what what was kind of the first signs to you that something was wrong with the narrative of the covid um i think like a lot of people you know i kind of had a probably a phase where i kind of just paused and kind of waited till there was information that i could look into and you kind of didn't know what was going on but once i was able to see what what they were doing you know again i kind of had thoughts in my mind like you know i think everybody thinks like oh well we we've identified a novel virus or whatever well then they must have separated this out from everything else and yeah know that it's real and that this is what's causing like once i started looking into the papers where they're identifying the first patient in wuhan or the first patient in wherever you know and also looking at the tests that they were doing I see it's PCR. I'm like, this is this is going to be a disaster. And sure enough, you know, then it all becomes all about testing and cases and and the whole asymptomatic thing. And it's like this, you know, it it makes no sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, people I think people have the idea that virologists are looking down a microscope and working, you know, with a a purified, isolated sample of a virus in laboratories all day that's what they see that's mm-hmm. the image they get from television and stuff when that's never happened they don't realize that nobody's ever isolated and purified the virus directly from a patient sample There's right no or, that in the in the medical literature yeah or the fact that you you can't see a virus in a in a regular light microscope i i think yeah. like you're saying there like there's this perception and i was talking to somebody recently that that's they just kind of assumed that well, you can view it under a regular microscope and you're seeing a virus. It's, you know, like a bacteria or something where you can see it, not realizing like these things are sub-microscopic particles. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, you need to do all this other stuff supposedly to see them and there's it's just riddled with problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, all the freezing, the heat and the staining, the mm-hmm. dying, the... Yeah, all of that, that um, you need to see a, an electron microscope image. And and then people say, well, of course they found the virus. They've taken pictures of it. And it's like, <laughs> well, yeah, well, there's lots of particles in a tissue culture, which is where they see a cell culture, a petri dish. Mm-hmm. They don't see a virus. They don't take a picture of a, an isolated sample of a virus. And after all the stuff that's done to the tissue, the, st- the freezing, the stain and all that, then you're going to generate artifacts and you're going to generate, you know, images of all kinds of things. And there's no, they, they don't, they don't even isolate um, what they're seeing in the slide. They just, you know, put an arrow to something that they see and they say, that's, that's, that particle there is the virus. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of isolation of well, we know this, particle we're looking at is the virus because of a b and c right exactly you know and so many times it's it's something derived out of a a cell culture because there's this idea that well in order to isolate the virus i have to have it replicate and the virus is basically an inert particle that doesn't do anything by itself so i have to put it on cells except for how do you know you had the virus in the first place that you're yeah yeah assuming you're putting on cells i mean that's the whole one of the weird things about it is these particles are supposed to be pretty much entirely inert not have any kind of metabolic or any any activity to themselves so the very idea that they're these tiny sub uh microscopic particles that are predatory i mean it's just kind of a weird notion because they can't do anything by themselves anyway. So it's entirely, even if this, they were there and this kind of situation did work, it would be entirely random that they'd uh, interact with a cell that they'd be able to quote unquote infect. And then the cell would have to take it up and then, you know, it's hijacking the cells processes and things. I mean, 
why would a cell want to do all that? Again, there's there's nothing about these particles that would allow them to position themselves onto the cells. You know, they're entirely inert. So yeah, and and it's like you said, they they acknowledge they're inert, which is why they put them in the cell. And we said, if they're inert, then how do they? How can they do anything? How 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 can they have the intelligence to to know what they have to do? You know, it's yeah, it's crazy. I have to ask you though, um, <laughs> I, uh, you you have a, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems you do have kind of a religious viewpoint and you kind of talked about that and you talk about true science, which is clear, demonstrable, evidence-based. How do you marry that with religion when the two would seem to be opposite? I'm kind of intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was kind of the, the other component to my deciding not to comply was my strong religious beliefs yeah. and um you know yeah it's i guess it kind of depends on on how you look at it but i mean i don't i think a lot of medicine science biology it's looking at humans as if they are machines but i guess yes, yes. even if you don't take it from you know call it religion or or you know some kind of organized thing like just the idea that we are that that is not what we are we are so much more than that yeah as beings and yeah i think i think we would both agree that there is some kind of spiritual element i I, i'm not religious myself but i think we can i would agree on the sense that there's more than just the human body right and so if you're willing to con- consider that, then, you know, I don't think it's as much of a of a stretch than it might seem. But if you're kind of solely focused on the idea that that's not the case and the body is kind of a machine and to be poked around at or, you know, manipulated with drugs and things like then. Yeah, I mean, I can see where it might be hard to for some people to kind of marry those things together but the for me I, yeah. yeah sorry go on continue no i mean i was to say for for me being that i've always perceived that it's more so so much more than that our existence is not just limited to that you know it's allowed me to expand beyond and consider that science really is the ex- exploration of you know all that is within and around us and, yeah, yeah. and not just limited to what we're kind of told it is yeah um and you know that's the one area that science doesn't investigate is anything beyond what it can see through a microscope you know it's kind of obsessed mm-hmm. with what what is what is viewable rather than other areas and i think that's a, a real shame um and uh i i guess you know the biggest irony is that science itself has become very religious you know some people talk about scientism science mm-hmm. is very dogmatic and um when it should be the opposite yeah this whole idea that we have to trust the science or believe the science just because and that the people that you have to trust are you know these experts or whatever i mean uh fauci even said at one point that he was the science (laughs) i mean (laughs) you know this this whole notion that you can't question anything and i mean it becomes like a religious belief like like dogma like you're saying like yeah you just have to accept it yeah without any evidence yeah i mean the (laughs) biggest the foundation of science is that you question it i mean a a proper scientist tries to prove himself wrong Mm -hmm. by accounting for every variable and everything that could disprove their hypothesis you know that's how science actually works and so you know if you can't question it it's not science because that is what the foundation of science is questioning even even your own conclusions yeah exactly i mean the second you're you're limiting people from questioning things or whatever i mean science ends you can't say that you to the very notion that you would say you can't question this is so antithetical to science itself is it's just mind-boggling. I guess the uh, the overall message of this 
interviewed this question everything <laughs> i guess that kind of sums it all up um it's been mm -hmm. a fascinating interview um i i could talk about it a lot more <laughs> if you have more time but, uh, <laughs> but um i've enjoyed this though and i think it's been very useful i hope there's a lot people can take from it i think there is and uh hopefully one day we can talk again yeah that would thank be you. great thank thank, thank you, you so much yeah thank you